Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. In the fall of 2009, the three-story home on Imperial Drive in the Mount Pleasant subdivision of Cleveland, Ohio, gave no hints of its original grandeur. In recent decades, the predominantly black neighborhood had begun to deteriorate due to the onslaught of the crack cocaine epidemic. As a result, the homes in the area had become abandoned and fallen into disrepair. In particular, the house located at 12205 Imperial Avenue had a fading facade, which was hiding a real-life house of horrors. Two days before Halloween 2009, two Cleveland officers arrived at the home of Anthony Soule for the purpose of investigating an allegation of rape. At the time, Anthony was classified as a low-level sex offender because he was able to use his considerable charm to convince a parole board he was no longer a threat to society. In reality, based on his crime in the scoring system at the time, he should have been categorized as a level 3 sex offender, which is the highest level of sex offender classification in Ohio. Level 3 sex offenders are considered the highest risk of reoffending, and they are subject to strict supervision and monitoring. At the time of Anthony's arrest in 2009, he was subject to a number of restrictions as a registered sex offender, which included registering as a sex offender and checking in with a parole officer once a year. However, if his name were to come up in any alleged crime, he was supposed to receive a more thorough investigation than the average person of interest. And when you find out what happened between the time of his release in 2005 from a previous rape conviction to 2009 when he was arrested again, you will be justifiably outraged. At the time, women who were living on the fringes of society were sacrificed by the system due to abandonment and a lack of concern. And that's being generous. The most important of those restrictions was the fact that he should have been at least required to wear an electric monitoring device that tracked his location at all times. You see, women were going missing near the home of a registered sex offender, and neither the probation department nor the police department thought to maybe check in with this local violent sexual predator in the middle of these disappearances. But this is also the same police department that allowed Jeffrey Dahmer to kill with impunity, even returning one victim to his custody, and also allowing Ariel Castro to abduct three young women right under their noses and hold them hostage for over a decade. Now, the assault that ended Anthony's brutal rape and torture chamber began on September 22, 2009. 
a woman by the name of LaTundra went with Anthony to his home, where they intended on drinking and doing drugs together. Like all of his victims, LaTundra was a black woman with a history of drug abuse and sex work. Due to their marginalized status in society, the police had very little interest, if any, in finding these missing women. And when they showed up in person to report their assaults, the allegations weren't sent to Anthony's parole officer. Instead, they were filed away as a he said, she said situation. But LaTundra wasn't having it. She insisted on filing a police report for rape and attempted murder. Her neck was clearly bruised and she had ligature marks where Anthony had strangled her with an electrical cord to the point of death. In fact, he thought he had actually killed her, but he was wrong. After repeatedly punching her in the face while orally and vaginally raping her, he sodomized her for one final act of degradation while he was using an electrical cord to strangle her until she died. Except she didn't die. She had awakened 20 minutes later to both her and Anthony's shock. In a brilliant act of self-preservation, she acted like what had transpired between the two of them was nothing more than rough sex. She continued to talk to Anthony and charmed him all the way to the street where she finally began to run for her life. She was dazed, bruised, and bleeding, and onlookers looked at her and laughed, but no one offered any help. She began hiding out in abandoned homes, getting high until she eventually summoned the courage to end Anthony Soule's reign of terror. We know that Anthony used drugs and alcohol to lure vulnerable young women into his torture chamber of death. He was a predator hiding in plain sight looking for prey. Before we talk about the rest of his crimes, let's go into his childhood and talk about the environment where he learned to be the apex predator he would eventually become. According to the book House of Horrors by Robert Saberna, Anthony was born in East Cleveland to Thomas Sowell Sr. and Claudia Garrison. His parents were never married, and his father was usually incarcerated throughout his childhood. Claudia worked hard to raise her four children without the help of any of their fathers. But she did this all with the help of her own mother, Irene Justice, who was described as a tough woman who was old school and believed in corporal punishment. For a long time, Anthony raised himself with a key around his neck while his mother worked two jobs. Anthony's older sister, Patricia, was born to Claudia when she was only 15 years old. Patricia was sickly her entire life, and she suffered from asthma. By the time Patricia was 18 years old, she had five children. Eventually, that number would swell to seven children, three boys and four girls. Now, according to one of Patricia's daughters, Leona Davis, her mother was told not to have any more children. But that didn't stop her. Eventually, both Claudia and her daughter Patricia would have seven children of their own, with mother and daughter having overlapping pregnancies. Now, sadly, Patricia passed away from a respiratory illness at the age of 27. This meant that Anthony now lived in the same house with his mother, his grandmother, his siblings, and now seven more of his nieces and nephews, who were all similar in age. His niece, Leona, would later say, when she first met Anthony, she thought he was a nice and sweet kid, only a year older than she was at the time. Later, Anthony would share a memory from his childhood when he was about seven years old. At the time, he didn't understand what was happening, but it captivated him. 
According to Anthony, he watched his older nephew force his niece to do something that she clearly didn't want to do. He told investigators, quote, He took her in the closet, and he was having lots of, there was a lot of sexual activity going on there. This was happening at my sister's house, and he was basically the oldest. He was, like, directing everybody to do what you really don't want to do. But I remember how he took her into the closet. Now, later, Anthony would allege that this same nephew began molesting him and would become violent when Anthony fought back. Anthony told investigators that for some reason, Claudia wasn't very happy about having to raise her grandchildren, and they became objects of her daily rage. One of her grandchildren, Leona, would later say that she targeted certain children more than others. According to Leona, the beatings occurred daily. Claudia would beat the children with anything, from belts to coat hangers, and her favorite was thin branches from the garden, or electrical cords. One of Leona's brothers was scarred so badly that he couldn't wear short pants or short-sleeved shirts for the rest of his life. Now, there were conflicting reports that Claudia only beat her grandchildren, but there were also reports that she would beat her own children as well, but not as severely. All of the children were expected to complete their daily chores with military precision. At the time, Claudia worked at a dry cleaner, and her mother, the children's grandmother, Irene, would work intermittently cleaning houses. In reality, Claudia only agreed to take in her seven grandchildren for the extra welfare benefits it provided. None of the children were allowed to speak, make a mess, invite over friends, or celebrate birthdays. Most importantly, they were never allowed to eat anything without permission. There were daily discipline sessions with mostly Claudia, but sometimes Irene as the perpetrator. Each day, the targeted children, which were mostly girls, were stripped naked, tied to a banister at the foot of the stairs, and whipped with an extension cord or switches. Leona would later say it was sadistic and ritualistic. She recalled Claudia calling down all of the children at 2 a.m. If there was a dirty dish in the sink, she would interrogate the children until somebody finally confessed. And that child who would confess would be beaten while the others were forced to watch. And as the girls got older, their bodies would develop, and they were still forced to strip down naked in front of the other children. And Anthony began looking forward to these beatings. Despite being only 11 years old, he began to take a sexual interest in the other children. So did his older brother, Junior. Anthony would later admit to stealing a soda or candy from his mother and blaming it on Leona or her twin sister so he could watch her be stripped and beaten. By 11 years old, he began raping Leona, as well as her younger sisters, several times per day, and so was his older brother, Junior. Leona tried to tell about the abuse several times and was beaten even more severely for, quote, telling hateful lies. Anthony and his two other brothers all loved the ritualistic beatings and watching their nieces degraded and humiliated by their mother and grandmother. It became a required component of their sexual arousal. If Leona refused to go upstairs with her uncles, she was beaten and dragged upstairs anyway. Eventually, Leona and her sisters began to run away. They preferred being in places like children's centers for troubled and runaway kids and foster homes with strangers over their own families. One time, Leona snuck into a children's home where her older sister was staying, and she managed to hide in plain sight for over two months before she was detected. 
And to her horror, she was returned to her grandmother's home, only to be tortured and raped again daily. Eventually, Leona devised a plan to save herself. She thought if there was no home to return to, she could stay at the children's home. Well, one day, while Claudia was at work, Leona went into her room and set a pile of her clothing on fire. Pretty soon, the fire department arrived, and Leona quickly confessed. That confession set her free. As a result of the arson, she was placed in the Sagamore Hills Children's Psychiatric Hospital, where someone finally believed her. Leona would describe the rest of her life as a blur filled with suicide attempts, blackouts, drug abuse, and mental illness, all as a result of her time spent in the same home as a future serial killer, Anthony Soule. Despite turning into a perpetrator inside of his home, outside of his home, Anthony was considered nice, quiet, and polite. The neighbors would describe him as kind and respectable. In high school, Anthony began dating a young girl who would later become his wife and the mother of his only child, Julie. And for a while, this kept him from raping his nieces. This marriage was short-lived and the two quickly divorced. Later, Julie would say once her parents divorced, Anthony divorced her too. He would no longer have anything to do with her. In the spring of 1977, Anthony enlisted in the Marines. Anthony thrived in the Marines, eventually completing two four-year tours of duty. While overseas, Anthony met his future second wife and fellow Marine by the name of Kim Yvette Lawson. He would later describe this as his most successful relationship. He said that Kim understood him more than anyone else. However, his childhood trauma and behavior would eventually ruin this relationship. Kim was affectionate and cuddly, which Anthony found this as a turnoff. He could only become sexually aroused if violence was involved. After several incidents of domestic violence, this relationship ended too. Kim divorced Anthony the day she got out of the Marines. Anthony had been honorably discharged from the Marines in 1985 after eight years of service. He moved back into the house with his mother and many children and cousins from various fathers. He began working as a metal fitter in an auto parts shop where he was well-liked and good at his job. Things were going well for Anthony until he crossed paths with Melvette Stockwell. Melvette Stockwell was 20 years old in the summer of 1989. She had two children and was three months pregnant with her third child on July 21, 1989, when she crossed paths with Anthony. She was at a payphone when Anthony, who was almost 30 years old at the time, struck up a conversation with her. Later, she would tell investigators that he spoke intelligently, looked clean and well-kept, and seemed nice and safe. So when he offered her a ride, she gladly accepted. He parked near his home, intending to walk her back to hers, which was about a block away. However, she made the fateful mistake of agreeing to go up to his room with him for a short visit. His room was in the attic space of the third floor. Later, she would tell investigators that there wasn't an agreement on sex. Instead, the two talked and got to know each other better. As she walked through the door, his demeanor immediately changed. He slammed the door shut and locked it with a deadbolt. Next, he pushed a heavy suitcase in front of the door and took out a large knife. 
For the next 12 hours, he raped and beat her in unspeakable ways. And this included elements of sexual torture. Anthony was a sexual sadist, which was something he developed in his childhood. As a child, he watched his cousin stripped naked, tied to a banister, and constantly beaten and tortured by his mother and grandmother with an electrical cord. Psychologists believe that while Anthony's body was going through puberty, he began to equate feelings of sexual arousal with violence and cruelty. But it should be noted that many of his cousins and siblings also experienced the same environment, and none of them grew up to be sexual sadists or serial killers. After 12 long hours of continual rape and torture, Anthony was tired, but he wasn't done with Malvet. So he tied up her hands behind her back with a belt and stuffed a rag into her mouth while he slept. He would periodically wake her up, choke her out, and then rape her again before falling back into sleep. At one point, he said, you might as well say your prayers because I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you and then I'm going to kill you. But first, I'm going to sleep because I'm too tired to kill you right now. Anthony loved to terrorize women before he killed them. He craved the fear in their eyes that only came with the knowledge of knowing that they were going to die. Within minutes, Anthony was sound asleep again, and Melvette knew this was going to be her last chance to escape if she wanted to survive. She carefully got out of bed with her hands still tied behind her back. She silently walked over to the window and opened it with her head, shoulders, mouth, and chin. The window was surrounded by a small ledge that allowed her to crawl onto the roof of the home. There, she stood naked and bound. With a gag in her mouth, she began making noise and got the attention of two women on the sidewalk. At first, they didn't know what they were seeing, so they began to wave to her. But just as quickly, they realized she was covered in blood and in danger. They called the police, and within minutes, police, fire trucks, and an ambulance arrived. Police stormed into the room and found him still asleep. In fact, he was just awakened when two other police officers rescued her from the roof and brought her back through the small window. As she was taken down to the ambulance, Anthony's sister, Tressa Garrison, began screaming at her, asking her why she didn't scream for help. Anthony was arrested and then bonded out. He didn't show up for his court date, and seven months later, he was arrested again for a second crime. On June 24, 1990, an unarmed 31-year-old woman who was five months pregnant made a similar allegation against Anthony. She told officers that Sol came up behind her, placed her in a chokehold, and told her that she was his bitch now and had better learn to like what he was about to do to her. He dragged her into his house, up to his room, where he spent the next few hours vaginally, orally, and anally raping her. She begged for mercy for herself and her unborn baby, but Anthony was undeterred. He forced her to call him sir and tell him she liked what he was doing to her. Once again, while he was sleeping, she made her escape, and he was still asleep when she arrived with the police. This time, Anthony wasn't given bond, but he was given a plea bargain. He pleaded down to attempted rape and was sentenced to 15 years in prison at the Grafton Correctional Institution. Once he arrived, he applied to be considered for the sex offender program at the Chillicothe Correctional Facility. He knew that by completing this program, he would be eligible for early parole. 
However, he was disqualified from participating in the program. Part of the program requires you to admit to your crimes. Anthony refused to admit that he did anything wrong and instead argued that the sex was consensual and the woman changed her mind after the fact. And as a result, he served every single day of his 15-year sentence. Overall, Anthony thrived in prison. He liked the institutional structure. It reminded him of his time in the Marines. He didn't complete the sex offenders program, but he did complete other courses. Those included Living Without Violence, Cage Your Rage, Positive Personal Change, and a 12-step program for Alcoholics Anonymous. He also completed the Adult Children of Alcoholics and Drug Awareness Prevention programs. Despite his violent crimes, he was eventually moved to a minimum security barrack-style prison surrounded by a perimeter fence. This was supposed to be for low-risk offenders, which Anthony clearly is not. In fact, his first parole report stated that, quote, Soul lied to the female victim and tricked her into coming into his house, where he threw her onto the bed, clubbed her, and raped her vaginally. She got dressed and tried to leave. He would not let her and removed her clothes again and tried to rape her anally. He was unable to perform. The victim had recent surgery and was four months pregnant. Soul raped her vaginally the second time, then tied her hands behind her back with a belt and gagged her with a towel. Then Soul went to sleep. She finally got free and got out. That report certainly minimized his crimes and was factually inaccurate. The victim was repeatedly raped, threatened with death, and tortured. In a second parole report from 1996, Anthony's crimes were even more minimalized. This time, it said, quote, The victim was at a hotel waiting for her boyfriend. Due to police cars in the lot, Sol enticed the victim to his house and raped her twice vaginally. She escaped by climbing out of a window and onto the roof where she was found with her hands tied with a tie. The report also stated that the victim didn't report the rape until the following summer. This is blatantly false since Malvette was found naked and bound on his roof. Anthony walked out of prison on June 20th, 2005, after serving every single day of his original sentence. The large mini-mansion where Anthony was raised had been repossessed for failure to pay the mortgage. So Anthony initially went back to his mother's rental house, which was now filled with even more nieces and nephews from his sister, Tressa. And despite the crowded conditions, Anthony was given his own room and treated like the man of the house. He was a great cook and loved the barbecue for his family and the neighborhood. Within a few months, Anthony moved out of his mother's house and in with his stepmother. His father had recently died and he took over the large three-story house on Imperial Avenue. He was one of 12 registered sex offenders within a five-mile radius of his new home. On September 1, 2005, Anthony showed up for his mandatory sex offender evaluation he had to undergo a sexual predator evaluation. The evaluation was a matter of public record, which indicated that Anthony lied throughout the examination. He told his evaluators that he grew up in a crowded, single-family home filled with love and laughter. Of course, this couldn't have been further from the truth. Anthony conveniently omitted the daily physical abuse or the daily sexual assaults. The report stated, quote, Anthony was not exposed to violence in his home, school, or community. He does not have a strong temper. 
Anthony's grades were average. He was never placed in special education classes, nor did he require tutoring or medicine for attention problems. His attendance was generally good, and he was never suspended or expelled. He also lied about his attack on Malvette. Instead of admitting that he only met her the night of the attack, he instead claimed to have known her for 18 months. This is something that is contradicted in the original police report and denied by Malvette. He further lied by alleging that he had paid her for consensual sex and was heavily drunk at the time of the encounter. He told evaluators that he only pled guilty because he had ineffectual counsel who suggested he do so. He also blamed the assault on a drinking problem he claimed he had successfully overcome while in prison. He also lied and said that his first sexual encounter was at 17 years old and normal. He admitted to paying for sex while in the Marines and insisted his interest in pornography was tame and again used the word normal. He denied having any violent sexual fantasies and described himself as just an unlucky guy who went to prison for a consensual act. The analyst wrote, quote, Anthony was attentive throughout the interview. He demonstrated a full range of emotional expressions. His speech was appropriate for the rate, tone, and volume. He was generally cooperative and polite. His thoughts were organized and logical. His responses were clear and understandable. The report concluded with a recommendation that he be labeled as low risk for reoffending. In reality, the facts of his crime alone meant he should have been evaluated at the highest risk for reoffending. And because of this missed opportunity to accurately classify him, he was allowed to commit violent and sadistic crimes for the next five years. And if he would have been properly evaluated and assigned the highest risk level, he would have accurately received more scrutiny when a sex crime in the area was reported. And many sex crimes in the area were reported, and some even named him directly. Yet, he continued raping, torturing, and murdering for several years before he was ultimately stopped. Eventually, his crimes would end with the police discovering 11 bodies in his home. And we'll discuss those crimes in greater detail in part two. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, Ashley here with Crime Salad. Just to let you know, if you are a Patreon or a premium listener on Apple, part two is available now. If you're not, no worries. This episode will be available to you next week. Connie, Elise, and Paige, thank you for supporting Crime Salad and becoming a supporter of the show. And to all of you who are premium members with Apple, thank you so much. Sadly, we don't actually get the names to shout out, but just know we still love you equally and appreciate you so much for supporting Crime Salad. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. I think that's all of them. And tag us, message us, and share us. We love you so much. We will see you next week. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. 
It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.